This is Histories and Mysteries. I'm Ashley. And I'm Jessica. And I'm Rochelle. And on this week's episode, um, Ashley is going to be talking about the Chanel Miller case, aka the Brock Turner case. And (laughs) I am going to be talking about Earl Nelson. Never heard of him. I hadn't either. And Kyle suggested it to me. So it's not like a super long one, but it's a goodie. Okay. Well, that's good because mine's really long. So yeah, mine's also like very much trigger warning. I'm so sorry. Um, same, same. Uh, yeah. Mine involves um, necrophilia and uh, yeah. awful things being done to children and women. So, okay. Well, mine's awful things being done to woman, but you know. Either way, it all around sucks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I do, I did want to give a trigger warning at the beginning of this because they do go into detail, like what exactly happened to her. So it is a little graphic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also I wanted to put in here that I have and will read her full victim impact statement. Um, it's really long. So I'll preface it before we get there that that's what it is. And if you don't want to listen to the whole thing, you can just like fast forward through it. But I just think it's important to have the full thing in there. Oh, yeah, of course. So, um, okay, so I got my sources from Wikipedia, NBC News, USA Today, Insider, LA Times, The Guardian, BuzzFeed, Washington Post, The Atlantic, and CNN. Nice. That was a lot. I pieced a lot of things together. <laughs> good. You're good at that. <laughs> Thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> So Chanel Miller, a.k.a. Emily Doe, at the time um, the when the whole court case was going on, she didn't want to be known who she was. So she went, the victim was known as Emily Doe. Um, I'm just going to call her Chanel throughout because she has since come out um, and wrote a book about it and said like, hey, I'm Emily Doe. So okay. um, she had graduated university already, but her younger sister, Tiffany, was home visiting for the weekend and asked Chanel if she wanted to go with her to a frat party at Stanford University. Chanel said, sure, why not? Uh, And off they went. But little did Chanel know, January 17th, kind of 18th, uh, 2015 was going to be a night that changed her life forever. She and her sister were having a great time drinking, socializing, doing, you know, normal college kid stuff mm-hmm. and the next thing chanel knew was that she was waking up in a hospital oh sweet babe i oh, know she said she had pine needles in her hair and stuck to her clothes and she had cuts and scrapes on her hands and her elbows she was told that she may have been sexually assaulted and they asked if they could do a rape kit on her and she said yes Um, They also told her that she was found behind a dumpster and that someone had been chased down and arrested, but that's all she knew. She said that she had just thought that she had like passed out somewhere and that there was a suspicious man at the party who had been behaving in an odd way. She said, quote, I had no idea he was directly connected to me in any way. And she, this is, this is awful. She didn't actually find out what happened to her until 10 days later when she saw a news story about Brock Turner's arrest. What? She hadn't heard anything more from the police. She didn't even know his name uh, or the fact that she had been assaulted. 
Why? I don't know. Okay. So she said she read the article and like the article didn't even like contact her. Cause at the time, you know, they, they didn't know who the victim was. Um, so she's reading this article and they're talking about the victim. And as she's reading it and reading about how this victim was sexually assaulted, she realized that this article was talking about her. That's awful. Awful. Yeah. Awful. Yeah. And she said, quote, It was surreal having the news broken to me by the internet. She said, I was alone sitting at my desk, surrounded by coworkers, reading about how I was stripped and then penetrated and discarded in a, in a bed of pine needles behind a dumpster. That's how I figured out all of those elements and they all added up. And I finally understood. Wow. Yeah. Like imagine going through something like that and not knowing what happened. Yeah. Like, it's traumatic enough remembering what happened, mm-hmm. let alone knowing something horrible happened to you, but having no recollection of it. And then finding out when you're at work. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Ugh. Horrible. So what actually happened is a bit fuzzy because we only know kind of what her sister saw before um, Chanel left the party. Brock's version of events, which is obviously lies and then the people who stopped him so we kind of had well not we i didn't do it they kind of had to piece together what happened based on these stories so tiffany chanel's sister said that she was drinking and hanging out in the party and at two separate times this guy brock uh came up to her and tried to kiss her and tiffany was like uh no thank you and then moved on But she said that she also never really saw this guy interact with her sister, but you're at a party, you know, how much are you paying attention to like, you know, if they were by each other all night, then I can see that. If not, you know, maybe there was some interaction, but you know, it doesn't really matter either way, you know? Well, yeah. And I mean, if they're at a party, they're probably all drinking and, you know, having a fun time and usually it's pretty dark at parties. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. So the next part is unknown because Chanel was drunk and she doesn't remember anything. Um, but at some point we know Chanel left the party and went outside. It's unclear whether Brock left with her or if he followed her, I'm going to assume followed her. her. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Then at around 1am, two graduate students from Sweden, uh, Peter Lars Johnson and Carl Frederick aren't, were riding their bike and came across a horrible scene. They saw a clearly unconscious woman laying on the ground with her dress pulled up and her underwear and phone beside her and Brock Turner on top of her. They said they saw him thrust his hips into the woman and they yelled out, what the fuck are you doing? She's unconscious. When Brock heard him, he tried to run, but Peter was like, nuh not today, rapist, and chased him down, tripped him, and held him there until the cops came. Carl ran to Chanel to make sure she was still breathing, and she was, thankfully. So then Carl joined Peter in holding down Brock. And Peter said that while he was holding him down, while he was holding Brock down, Peter said, what are you smiling for? Because Brock was smiling. Ew. 
He didn't answer, but in court, Brock said that he was laughing because the situation was ridiculous. You're ridiculous. Yeah. So as the two Swedish uh, graduate students were holding him down, a third bystander called the police. So yes, for our uh, heroes, our graduate student heroes. Yeah. Good job. Yeah. So the deputy sheriff who showed up on the scene said that Chanel was unconscious at the time and did not respond to shouting or being shaken on the shoulders. The paramedics did say that she opened her eyes when they like pinched her nail beds uh, mm-hmm. and she didn't regain consciousness until 4.15 a.m. in the hospital. Ugh, the worst. So here is Brock's ever-changing side of the story. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> right? <laughs> I want to hear the bullshit. It's all bullshit. So when police first arrested him, he said that he met Chanel outside the frat house and left with her. He also said he did not know her name and stated, quote, he would not be able to recognize her again if he saw her. Classy. What a bitch. Um, And at 1 a.m. at like right after his arrest, his blood alcohol content was 0.171%. So that's pretty high. He was pretty drunk. Yeah. Um, and Chanel's, they estimate to be around 0.22% based on her reading in the hospital and then like going backwards. You know what I mean? So a bit later, he told police that he met her at the party. They had a beer together and walked away from the house holding hands. He said that uh, he took her clothes off and was fondling her while she rubbed his back. He then said that he got too nauseous and needed to vomit. He said when he got up to throw up, he heard two people talking in a foreign language and he ran for some reason. He doesn't say why. And then he got tackled. Then in court. What? (laughs) Yeah. What? Just like for some reason, some guys tackled me. I don't know. Oh, my God. So then in court, he said not only did they meet at a party and drink a beer together, but they also danced and kissed at the party and then agreed to go back to his room. As they were walking, Chanel slipped on a slope behind a wooden shed, which makes sense because she had the scrapes on her hands and her elbows. Brock said then he got down on the ground with her and started kissing her. Brock said he asked her if she wanted him to finger her. And I'm sure he asked, of course, because he's a gentleman, right? Like, sorry, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> just imagine if a guy, like, you're getting hot and heavy with a guy, and he's just like, "Hey, can I finger you?" I know. <laughs> just like, what the fuck? Like, ridiculous. Oh my god, nobody ever asks that. That's shit. exactly what I thought too. Like, God. Um, and according to him, she said yes. So he fingered her for a minute as they were kissing. And then they started dry humping, which is his excuse for why the two graduate students saw him thrusting his hips into her. Okay. 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 Why? Why would you finger somebody and then dry hump them? Yeah. I don't know. Like that seems kind (laughs) of reverse. Yeah. You'd like dry hump first and then go into the yeah yeah um he then said he tumbled down the slope a bit when he saw peter and carl who said you're sick and do you think that's okay brock said he didn't know what they were talking about and ran uh when peter tried to put him in an arm lock so that was his side of the story however a bit before 1 a.m., like right before this happened, Chanel called her boyfriend and left a voice message, which was used in court. 
And she was, quote, almost entirely incomprehensible, which means that she was not able to give him consent or think through logically any of those things. I don't think she probably would have even been able to answer those questions that he was apparently asking her. I thought that her alcohol content was less than his. Was it not? Mm -mm. It was high. His was 0.17. Hers was 0.22. Oh, I thought you said one point. Oh, no, no, no. Okay. Dead at that point. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So they also found DNA evidence. So Chanel's DNA was found under Brock's fingernails on both hands and some on his right fingers. Um, The person who ran the DNA test said that he couldn't determine if the um, DNA they found on Brock's fingers was blood, but he said it did resemble blood. So I don't know if he made her bleed inside or if that was the blood from her hands and her elbows or what, but either way, it's awful. So right after this happened, obviously it made the news and Brock withdrew from Stanford And then Stanford announced that he was banned from campus. And then two weeks later, they announced that he could never step foot on campus again. He also received a lifetime ban because I'm sure everybody heard about this. He was a Stanford swimming star. Um, He received a lifetime ban from the USA swimming team. And Olympic trials are only open to members of the USA swimming team. So he was no longer, he would never be able to be in the Olympics. So I know, poor guy. Poor turd. But I do have to say that both Stanford and the USA swimming team were much harder on him than the law was. Honestly, I was going to say at least something came out of this crap. Yeah. So. Are you good? Did you mention this or are you going to mention it? But one of the like, I don't know who she was, but she's like worked in the school board and like pushed to have his face like put next to rapist and like their dictionary or their textbook no i didn't hear that oh that's cool i like that so on january 28th 2015 about 10 days after the attack brock was indicted on five charges rape of an intoxicated person rape of an unconscious person, sexual penetration by a foreign object of an unconscious woman, sexual penetration by a foreign object of an intoxicated woman, and assault with intent to commit rape. Unfortunately, the first two rape charges were dropped at his preliminary hearing because the DNA testing revealed that no genetic evidence of, there was no genetic evidence of genital to genital contact. And at the time, California law defined rape as penetration of penis, 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 penis into vagina. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Do you want to redo that? (laughs) (laughs) Nah, keep that in. Um, (laughs) Now they have changed the laws where rape can be the penetration of anything. So that's insane that you guys are that far behind. tell me about it like are you kidding me yeah holy shit so uh brock obviously pleads not guilty because he's an asshole and he was released on hundred fifty thousand dollar bail brock's defense was that he, it was consensual and prosecution said um no and chanel said she did not remember giving consent which she was incapable of giving consent 
The jury did side with the prosecution and found him guilty of all three felony charges, which could give him up to 14 years in prison. So before sentencing, Brock was able to write a letter to the judges, as was Chanel. And here's what Brock said. No. It's just so much Skip bullshit. it. <laughs> <laughs> so bullshit. We don't care. I think you have to hear it, though, to see, like, how out of touch he is no because it makes me angry that like jack shit was done to him yeah it's it's awful all right he said if you guys want to if you don't want to hear this go ahead and hit fast forward but rochelle and jessica you gotta hear it (laughs) sucks to suck (laughs) all right the night of january 17th changed my life and the lives of everyone involved forever i can never go back to being the person i was before that day I am no longer a swimmer, a student, a resident of California, or the product of the work that I put in to accomplish the goals that I set out in the first 19 years of my life. Not only have I altered my life, but I've also changed redacted, so Chanel, um, and her family's life. I am the sole proprietor of what happened on the night, and these people's lives were changed forever. I would give anything to change what happened that night. I can never forgive myself for imposing trauma and pain on her. It debilitates me to think that my actions have caused her emotional and physical stress that is completely unwarranted and unfair. The thought of this is in my head every second of every day since this event had occurred. These ideas never leave my mind. During the day, I shake uncontrollably from the amount I torment myself by thinking about what has happened. I wish I had the ability to go back in time and never pick up a drink that night, let alone interact with her. I am barely holding a conversation with someone without having my mind drift into thinking these thoughts. They torture me. I go to sleep every night having been crippled by these thoughts to the point of exhaustion. I wake up having dreamt of these horrific events that I have caused. I am completely consumed by my poor judgment and ill thoughts and actions. There isn't a second that's gone by where I haven't regretted the course of events I took on January 17th slash 18th. My shell and core of who I am as a person is forever broken from this. I am a changed person. At this point in my life, I never want to have a drop of alcohol again. I never want to attend a social gathering that involves alcohol or any situation where people make decisions based on substances they have consumed. I never want to experience being in a position where I have a negative impact on my life or someone else's ever again. I've lost two jobs solely based on the reporting of my case. I wish I was never good at swimming or had the opportunity to extend to attend Stanford. So maybe the newspapers wouldn't want to write stories from me. All I can do from these events moving forward is by proving to everyone who I really am as a person. I know that if I were to be placed on probation, I would be able to be a benefit to society for the rest of my life. I want to earn a college degree in any capacity in any capacity that I'm able to do so. And in accomplishing this task, I can make the people around me and society better through the example I will set. I have been goal-oriented person since my start as a swimmer. I want to take what I can from who I was before this situation happened and use it to the best of my abilities moving forward. I know I can show people who are like me the dangers of assuming what college life can be like without thinking about the consequences one would potentially have to make if one were to take the same decisions I made. I want to show that people's lives can be destroyed by drinking and making poor decisions while doing so. 
One needs to recognize the influence that peer pressure and the attitude of having to fit in can have on someone. One's decision has the potential to change your entire life. I know I can impact and change people's attitudes towards the culture surrounded by binge drinking and sexual promiscuity that protrudes through what people think is at the core of being a college student. I want to demolish the assumption that drinking and partying are what make up college lifestyle. I made a mistake. I drank too much and my decision hurt someone, but it never, ever meant to intentionally hurt Chanel. My poor decision-making and excessive drinking hurt someone that night. And I wish I could just take it back. If I were to be placed on probation, I can pass. No, 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 no. You're fucking raping hurt someone that night. Right. Yeah. Now you're drinking. And so you can see where his head is like, he's not even like grasping the situation. Like he's blaming it all on drinking and partying and the college lifestyle. I know a lot of people who drank and partied through college and they never raped anybody. Like I literally have that written in here. (laughs) Same. (laughs) Fuck. It's so frustrating. So anyway, uh, he goes on to talk about how he wants to be on probation and he would take the opportunity and um, blah, blah, blah. So he also claimed that he got so drunk because he wasn't used to drinking, which is a lie. His phone records show quite a bit of experience with drugs and alcohol, including LSD and ecstasy. He was also arrested in 2014 for being a minor with alcohol. So it's not a new thing for him. Um. Okay, what I'm going to do next is continue on with the story. And then at the end, I'm going to read Chanel's victim impact statement because it's really, really long. So if people want to skip that part and just go to Jessica's story, they can. So, um, okay. There's also a famous quote from Brock's dad, which I'm sure you've heard, who pleaded with the judge for leniency, saying that, Quote, this is a steep price to pay for 20 minutes of action out of the 20 plus years of his life. Basically saying that jail time is too much. And basically saying, you know, I've done the same shit and, you know, I think the judge probably has too, just by this. So the judge (laughs) So from what he Brock was convicted of, he could get face up to 14 years in prison. And I don't think that's enough. But uh, the judge said, quote, I mean, I take him at his word that subjectively this was his version of events. The jury obviously found it not to be the sequence of events. So basically, he's saying he doesn't believe the jury. He believes Brock and what he said. He then went on to say that it was a difficult decision and that he considered denying probation because of the physical and devastating emotional injury of the victim, but I guess he didn't consider it that much. He also took into consideration that Turner was remorseful, even though he did not seem remorseful in his statement at all. Uh, Yep. (laughs) He did not have any prior convictions. He was young. He was unarmed when it happened and he would comply with the terms of probation And he would not be a danger to others if not imprisoned, except for, you know, all drunk girls. He also said that while alcohol is not an excuse, it was a factor that when trying to assess moral culpability in this situation, it is mitigating. And that's where I wrote, Rochelle, I don't know, man, I've been around a lot of drunk guys who don't go around raping women. (laughs) 
He also said that a prison sentence would have a severe impact and adverse collateral consequences of Brock. Poor sweet baby. Sweet muffin pie. What a well beaming. <laughs> so Brock was sentenced to six months in jail. That infuriates me. Well, be even more mad because due to overcrowding, he served three months. Due to overcrowding. Three months. <laughs> okay. So, of course, he appealed, saying that there was a lack of sufficient evidence to support three convictions. His lawyers argued that they didn't know when Chanel became unconscious and that because Turner was fully clothed and engaged in forms of sexual contact other than intercourse, it would negate an inference of intent to rape. Um, The justice said, nah, bitch, and threw down his appeal. So where is everybody now? After his sentencing, Aaron Persky, the judge, his law offices began getting threatening calls and an online petition was created to recall Persky. So I don't know if you guys have the same thing, but when you recall a judge, you're basically like firing them. But it has to be done through a vote of the citizens. But this petition had 1.2 million signatures. Uh, along with a Stanford law professor and other people in the legal community um, trying to organize to remove him. There have also been, there had also been several jurors who refused to serve with him. So they're like, do you want to be a jury? They found out the judge and they're like, we're not doing it. We refuse. He was fired from his high school coaching job and he was recalled. It was the first time since 1932 that a judge had been recalled in California. California residents voted to recall him and 60% voted to get him out. So he is no longer a judge. Jeez. Brock Turner now works for a cooling tech company in Ohio as an entry-level job making $12 an hour. Uh, He also still lives with his parents. And the article I read had to throw in that he drives a 2008 Chrysler. (laughs) And he's 26. (laughs) Jeez. Chanel Miller is a badass bitch. She wrote a memoir called Know My Name, which was a New York Times bestseller and won the 2019 National Book Critics Circle Award. Her statement launched the Me Too movement and uh, her victim impact statement. And was read over 11 million times in four days. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. She was listed as an influential person in Times 2019 100 Next List. And she is a new artist debuting work at the San Francisco Asian Art Museum. She also goes around to speak about sexual assault. She also won a $150,000 settlement for agreeing not to sue the university. It was to cover the cost of therapy for her and her younger sister. Uh, Stanford also removed the dumpster and replaced it with a meditation garden and a commemorative plaque with a, well, the commemorative plaque isn't up yet because they said, we're going to put a commemorative plaque and Chanel, you can pick the quote that we put on there. So no one will ever forget what happened here. The quote she originally chose was from her victim impact statement. And it said, I'm not just a drunk victim at a frat party found behind a dumpster while you're the all American swimmer at a top university, innocent until proven guilty with so much at stake. Stanford Vice Provost Lauren 
it doesn't matter because she's awful, rejected <laughs> it. She said, our agreement was not to condemn a single individual, she wrote to Miller. So Miller offered another quote, quote, you took my worth, my privacy, my energy, my time, my safety, my intimacy, my confidence, my own voice until today. That was also from her victim impact statement. And again, they rejected that quote. They said it could be triggering and upsetting to some survivors instead of the hoped for effect of contributing to their healing. After that, Miller said, I'm not going to give you guys a third quote. And she explained, as a survivor, I feel a duty to provide a realistic view of the complexity of recovery. I'm not here to rebrand the mess he made on campus. It's not my responsibility to alchemize what he did into healing words society can digest. I do not exist to be the eternal flame, the beacon, the flowers that bloom in your garden. There are some people uh, at Stanford that are trying to petition and push to get um, one of her chosen quotes put on there. And I want to end this with a quote from her. And I think this is really appropriate for a lot of women who have gone through something like this, where maybe they got drunk and someone took advantage of them and they heard the quote, well, you should have gotten that drunk. This is what she said. I hate that. Me too. Rape is not a punishment for getting drunk. We have this really sick mindset in our culture as if you deserve rape if you drink to excess. You deserve a hangover, a really bad hangover, but you don't deserve to have somebody insert their body parts inside of you. I gave me goosebumps. Oh, <laughs> like, what are you doing? I got goosebumps. Aww. Sorry, I'm not reacting because I'm just trying to like listen and be respectful to... Mm-hmm her i gotcha yeah so that i want to interrupt you i gotcha (laughs) so that is the story of chanel miller and as promised here is chanel's uh chanel miller's victim impact statement your honor if it's all right for the majority of this statement i would like to address the defendant directly you don't know me but you've been inside me and that's why we're here today On January 17th, 2015, it was a quiet Saturday night at home. My dad made some dinner and I sat at the table with my younger sister who was visiting for the weekend. I was working full time and it was approaching my bedtime. I planned to stay at home by myself, watch some TV and read while she went to a party with her friends. Then I decided it was my only night with her. I had nothing better to do, so why not? There's a dumb party 10 minutes from my house. I would go dance like a fool and embarrass my younger sister. On the way there, I joked that undergrad guys would have braces. My sister teased me for wearing a beige cardigan to a frat party like a librarian. I called myself Big Mama because I knew I'd be the oldest one there. I made silly faces, let my guard down, and drank liquor too fast, not factoring in what my tolerance had significantly lowered since college. The next thing I remember, I was in a gurney in a hallway. I had dried blood and bandages on the backs of my hands and elbows. I thought maybe I had fallen and was in an admin office on campus. I was very calm and wondering where my sister was. A deputy had explained I had been assaulted. I still remained calm, assured he was speaking to the wrong person. I knew no one at this party. When I was finally allowed to use the restroom, I pulled down the hospital pants they had given me, went to pull down my underwear, and felt nothing. I still remember the feeling of my hands touching my skin and grabbing nothing. I looked down, and there was nothing. 
The thin piece of fabric, the only thing between my vagina and anything else was missing, and everything inside me was silenced. I still don't have words for that feeling. In order to keep breathing, I thought maybe the policeman used scissors to cut them off for evidence. Then I felt pine needles scratching the back of my neck and started pulling them out of my hair. I thought maybe the pine needles had fallen from a tree onto my head. My brain was talking my gut into not collapsing because my gut was saying, help me, help me. I shuffled from room to room with a blanket wrapped around me, pine needles trailing behind me. I left a little pile in every room I sat in. I was asked to sign papers that said, rape victim. And I thought something has really happened. My clothes were compensated and I stood naked while the nurses held a ruler to various abrasions on my body and photographed them. The three of us worked to comb the pine needles out of my hair, six hands to fill one paper bag. To calm me down, they said it's just the flora and fauna, flora and fauna. I had multiple swabs inserted into my vagina and anus, needles for shots, pills, had a Nikon pointed right at my spread legs. I had long pointed beaks inside of me and had my vagina smeared with cold blue paint to check for abrasions. After a few hours of this, they let me shower. I stood there examining my body beneath the stream of water and decided I don't want my body anymore. I was terrified of it. I didn't know what had been in it, if it had been contaminated, who had touched it. I wanted to take off my body like a jacket and leave it at the hospital with everything else. On that morning, all that I was told was that I had been found behind a dumpster, potentially penetrated by a stranger, and that I should get retested for HIV because results don't always show up immediately. But for now, I should go home and get back to my normal life. Imagine stepping back into the world with only that information. They gave me huge hugs, and I walked out of the hospital into the parking lot, wearing the new sweatshirt and sweatpants they provided me, as they had only allowed me to keep my necklace and shoes. My sister picked me up, face wet from tears, and contorted in anguish. Instinctively and immediately, I wanted to take away her pain. I smiled at her. I told her to look at me. I'm right here. I'm okay. Everything's okay. I'm right here. My hair is washed and clean. They gave me the strangest shampoo. Calm down and look at me. Look at these funny new sweatpants and sweatshirt. I look like a PE teacher. Let's go home. Let's eat something. She did not know that beneath my sweatsuit, I had scratches and bandages on my skin. My vagina was sore and had become a strange dark color from all the prodding. My underwear was missing and I felt too empty to continue to speak. That I was also afraid. That I was also devastated. That day we drove home and for hours in silence, my younger sister held me. My boyfriend did not know what happened, but called that day and said, I was really worried about you last night. You scared me. Did you make it home okay? I was horrified. That's when I learned I had called him that night in my blackout, left an incomprehensible voicemail that we had also spoken on the phone, but I was slurring so heavy he was scared for me that he repeatedly told me to go find my sister. Again, he asked me, what happened last night? Did you make it home okay? I said yes and hung up to cry. I was not ready to tell my boyfriend or parents that actually I may have been raped behind a dumpster and I don't know by who or when or how. If I told them, I would see the fear on their faces and mine would multiply by tenfold. So instead, I pretended the whole thing wasn't real. I tried to push it out of my mind, but it was so heavy. I didn't talk. I didn't eat. I didn't sleep. I didn't interact with anyone. After work, I would drive to a secluded place to scream. I didn't talk. I didn't eat. I didn't sleep. 
I didn't interact with anyone, and I became isolated from the ones I loved most. For over a week after the accident, I didn't get any calls or updates about that night or what happened to me. The only symbol that proved that it hadn't just been a bad dream was a sweatshirt from the hospital in my drawer. One day I was at work scrolling through the news on my phone and came across an article. In it, I read and learned for the first time about how I was found unconscious with my hair disheveled, long necklace wrapped around my neck, bra pulled pulled out of my dress, dress pulled off over my shoulders and pulled up above my waist, that I was butt naked all the way down to my boots, legs spread apart, and had been penetrated by a foreign object by someone I did not recognize. This is how I learned what happened to me. Sitting at my desk, reading the news at work. I learned what happened to me the same time everyone else in the world learned what happened to me. That's when the pine needles in my hair made sense. They didn't fall from a tree. He had taken off my underwear. His fingers had been inside of me. I don't even know this person. I still don't know this person. When I read about me like this, I said, this can't be me. This can't be me. I could not digest or accept any of this information. I could not imagine my family having to read about this online. I kept reading. In the next paragraph, I read something that I will never forgive. I read that according to him, I liked it. I liked it. Again, I do not have words for these feelings. It's like if you were to read an article where a car was hit and found dented in a ditch, but maybe the car enjoyed being hit. Maybe the other car didn't mean to hit it. Just bump it a little bit. Cars get in accidents all the time. People aren't always paying attention. Can we really say who's at fault? And then at the bottom of the article, after I learned about the graphic details of my own sexual assault, the article listed his swimming times. She was found breathing, unresponsive with her underwear six inches away from her bare stomach curled in fetal position. By the way, he's really good at swimming. Throw in my mile time if that's what we're doing. I'm good at cooking. Put that in there. I think the end is where you list your extracurriculars to cancel out all the sickening things that have happened. The night news came out. I sat at my parents down and told them that I had been assaulted. To not look at the news because it's upsetting. Just know that I'm okay. I'm right here and I'm okay. But halfway through telling them, my mom had to hold me because I could no longer stand up. The night after it happened, he said he didn't know my name. He said he wouldn't be able to identify my face in a lineup. Didn't mention any dialogue between us. No words, only dancing and kissing. Dancing is a cute term. Was it snapping fingers and twirling dancing or just bodies grinding up against each other in a crowded room? I wonder if kissing was just faces sloppily pressed up against each other. When the detective asked if he had planned on taking me back to his dorm, he said no. When the detective asked how he ended up behind the dumpster, he said he didn't know. He admitted to kissing other girls at that party, one of whom was my own sister who pushed him away. He, admitting to wanting, he admitted to wanting to hook up with someone. I was the wounded antelope of the herd, completely alone and vulnerable, physically unable to fend for myself, and he chose me. Sometimes I think if I hadn't gone, then this never would have happened, but then I realized it would have happened just to somebody else. You are about to enter four years of access to drunk girls and parties, and if this is the foot you started off on, then this is right you did not continue. The night after it happened, he said he thought I liked it because I rubbed his back. A back rub. Never mentioned me voicing content consent. Never mentioned us even speaking. A back rub. 
One more time in public news, I learned that my ass and vagina were completely exposed outside. My breasts had been groped. Fingers had been jabbed inside me along with pine needles and debris. My bare skin and head had been rubbing against the ground behind the dumpster, while an erect freshman was humping my half-naked, unconscious body. But I don't remember, so how do I prove I didn't like it? I thought there was no way this was going to trial. There were witnesses. There was dirt in my body. He ran but was caught. He's going to settle, formally apologize, and we'll both move on. Instead, I was told he hired a powerful attorney, expert witnesses, private investigators who were going to try and find details about my personal life to use against me, find loopholes in my story to invalidate me and my sister, in order to show that the sexual assault was in fact a misunderstanding, that he was going to go to any length to convince the world he had simply been confused. I was not only told that I was assaulted, I was told that because I couldn't remember, I technically could not prove it was unwanted, and that distorted me damaged me, almost broke me. It's the saddest type of confusion to be told I was assaulted and nearly raped, blatantly, out and in the open, but we don't know if it counts as assault yet. I had to fight for an entire year to make it clear that there was something wrong with this situation. When I was told to be prepared in case we didn't win, I said, I can't prepare for that. He was guilty the minute I woke up. No one can talk me out of the hurt he caused. Worst of all, I was warned, because he knows you don't remember, he is going to get to write the script. He can say whatever he wants, and no one can contest it. I had no power. I had no voice. I was defenseless. My memory loss would be used against me. My testimony was weak, was incomplete, and I was made to believe that perhaps I am not enough to win this. His attorney constantly reminded the jury that only the only one we can believe is Brock, because she doesn't remember. The helplessness was traumatizing. Instead of taking time to heal, I was taking time to recall the night in excruciating detail in order to prepare for the attorney's questions that would be invasive, aggressive, and designed to steer me off course, to contradict myself, my sister, phrased in ways to manipulate my answers. Instead of his attorney saying, did you notice any abrasions? He said, you didn't notice any abrasions, right? This was a game of strategy, as if I could be tricked out of my own worth. The sexual assault had been so clear, but instead, here I was at the trial answering questions like, how old are you? How much do you weigh? What did you eat that day? Well, what did you have for dinner? Who made dinner? Did you drink with dinner? No, not even water. When did you drink? How much did you drink? What container did you drink out of? Who gave you the drink? How much do you usually drink? Who dropped you off at this party? At what time? But where exactly? What were you wearing? Why were you going to this party? What did you do when you got there? Are you sure you did that? But what time did you do that? What does this text mean? Who were you texting? When did you urinate? Where did you urinate? With whom did you urinate outside? Was your phone on silent when your sister called? Do you remember silencing it? Really, because on page 53, I'd like to point out that you said it was set to ring. Did you drink in college? You said you were a party animal. How many times did you black out? Did you party at frats? Are you serious with your boyfriend? Are you sexually active with him? When did you start dating? Would you ever cheat? Do you have a history of cheating? What do you mean when you said you wanted to reward him? Do you remember what time you woke up? Were you wearing your cardigan? What color was your cardigan? Do you remember any more from that night? No? Okay, well, we'll just let Brock fill it in. I was 
pummeled with narrow pointed questions that dissected my personal life, love life, past life, family life, inane questions, accumulating trivial details to try and find an excuse for this guy who had me half naked before even bothering to ask for my name. After a physical assault, I was assaulted with questions designed to attack me to say, see, her facts don't line up. She's out of her mind. She's practically an alcoholic. She probably wanted to hook up. He's like an athlete, right? They were both drunk. Whatever. The hospital stuff she remembers is after the fact. Why take that into account? Brock has a lot of sta at stake, so he's having a really hard time right now. And then the time came for him to testify, and I learned what it meant to be re-victimized. I want to remind you, the night after it happened, he said that he never planned to take me back to his dorm. He said he didn't know why we were behind a dumpster. He got up to leave because he wasn't feeling well when he was suddenly chased and attacked. Then he learned I could not remember. So one year later, as predicted, a new dialogue emerged. Brock had a strange new story, almost sounded like a poorly written young adult novel, with kissing and dancing and hand-holding and lovingly tumbling to the ground, and most importantly in this new story, there was suddenly consent. One year after the incident, he remembered, oh yeah, by the way, she actually said yes to everything, so... He said he had asked if I wanted to dance. Apparently, I said yes. He said... He'd asked if I wanted to go to his dorm. I said yes. Then he asked if he could finger me, and I said yes. Most guys don't ask, can I finger you? Usually there's a natural progression of things, unfolding consensually, not a question and answer. But apparently I granted full permission. He's in the clear. Even in his story, I only said a total of three words, yes, 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 before he had me half naked on the ground. Future reference, if you're confused about whether a girl cons consent, See if she can speak an entire sentence. You couldn't even do that. Just one coherent string of words. Where was the confusion? This is common sense. Human decency. According to him, the only reason we were on the ground because was because I fell down. Note, if a girl falls down, help her get back up. If she's too drunk to even walk and falls down, do not mount her, hump her, take off her underwear, and insert your hand inside her vagina. If a girl falls down, help her up. If she's wearing a cardigan over her dress, don't take it off so that you can touch her breasts. Maybe she's cold. Maybe that's why she wore the cardigan. Next in the story, two Swedes on a bicycle approached you and you ran. When they tackled you, why didn't you say, stop, everything's okay, go ask her, she's right over there, she'll tell you. I mean... You had just asked for my consent, right? I was awake, right? When the policeman arrived and interviewed the evil Swede who tackled you, he was crying so hard he couldn't speak because of what he'd seen. Your attorney has repeatedly pointed out, well, we don't know exactly when she became unconscious. And you're right. Maybe I was still fluttering my eyes and I wasn't completely limp yet. That was never the point. I was too drunk to speak English, too drunk to consent way before I was on the ground. I should have never been touched in the first place. Brock stated, at no time did I see that she was not responding. If at any time I thought she was not responding, I would have stopped immediately. Here's the thing. If your plan was to stop only when I became unresponsive, then you still do not understand. You didn't even stop when I was unconscious anyway. Someone else stopped you. Two guys on bikes noticed I wasn't moving in the dark and had to tackle you. How did you not notice while on top of me? 
You said you would have stopped and gotten help. You say that, but I want you to explain how you would have helped me step by step. Walk me through this. I want to know if those evil Swedes had not found me, how the night would have played out. I'm asking you, would you have pulled my underwear back on over my boots, untangled my necklace wrapped around my neck, closed my legs, covered me, picked the pine needles from my hair, asked if the abrasions on my neck and bottom hurt? Would you then go find a friend and say, will you help me get her somewhere warm and soft? I don't sleep when I think about the way it could have gone if the two guys had never come. What would have happened to me? That's what you'll never have a good answer for. That's what you can't explain even after a year. On top of all this, he claimed that I orgasmed after one minute of digital penetration. The nurse said that there had been abrasions, lacerations, and dirt in my genitalia. Was that before or after I came? To sit under oath, inform us all that yes, I wanted it. Yes, I permitted it. And that you are the true victim attacked by Swedes for reasons unknown to you is appalling, is demented, is selfish, is damaging, is enough to be suffering. It is another thing to have someone ruthlessly working to diminish the gravity of validity of his of this suffering. My family had to see pictures of my head strapped to a gurney full of pine needles, of my body in the dirt with my eyes closed, hair messed up, limbs bent, and dress hiked up. And even after that, my family had to listen to your attorney say that the pictures were after the fact. We can dismiss them. To say, yes, her nurse confirmed there was redness and abrasions inside her, significant trauma to her genitalia, but that's what happens when you finger someone. And he's already admitted to that. To listen to your attorney attempt to paint a picture of me, the face of girls gone wild, as if somehow that would make it so that I had this coming for me. To listen to him say I surrounded, I sounded drunk on the phone because I'm silly and that's my goofy way of speaking. To point out that in the voicemail I said I would reward my boyfriend and we all know what I was thinking. I assure you, my rewards program is non-transferable, especially to any nameless man that approaches me. He has done irreversible damage to me and my family during the trial, and we have sat silently, listening to him shape the evening. But in the end, his unsupported statements and his attorney's twisted logic fooled no one. The truth won. The truth spoke for itself. You are guilty. Twelve jurors convicted you guilty of three felony counts beyond reasonable doubt. That's 12 votes per count. 36 yeses confirming guilt and that's 100% unanimous guilt and I thought finally it is over finally he will own up to what he did truly apologize we will both move on and get better then I read your statement if you are hoping that one of my organs will implode from anger and I will die I am almost there you are very close this is not a story of another drunk college hookup with poor decisions making assault is not an accident Somehow you still don't get it. Somehow you still sound confused. I will now read portions of the defendant's statement and respond to them. You said being drunk, I just couldn't make the best decisions and neither could she. Alcohol is not an excuse. Is it a factor? Yes. But alcohol was not the one who stripped me, fingered me, and had my head dragged against the ground with me almost fully naked. Having too much to drink was an amateur mistake that I admit to, but it is not criminal. Everyone in this room has had a night where they have regretted drinking too much or know someone close to them who had a night where they have regretted drinking too much. Regretting drinking is not the same as regretting sexual assault. We were both drunk. The difference is I didn't take off your pants and underwear, touch you inappropriately, and run away. 
that's the difference. You said, if I wanted to get to know her, I should have asked for her number rather than asking her to go back to my room. I'm not mad because you didn't ask for my number. Even if you did know me, I would not want to be in the situation. My own boyfriend knows me, but if he asked to finger me behind a dumpster, I would slap him. No girl wants to be in this situation. Nobody. I don't care if you know their phone number or not. You said, I stupidly thought it was okay for me to do what everyone was around me was doing, which was drinking. I was wrong. Again, you're not wrong for drinking. Everyone around you was not sexually assaulting me. You were wrong for doing what nobody else was doing, which was pushing your erect dick in your pants against my naked, defenseless body concealed in a dark area where partygoers could no longer see or protect me and my own sister could not find me. Sipping fireball is not your crime. Peeling off and discarding my underwear like a candy wrapper to insert your finger into my body is where you went wrong. Why am I still explaining this? You said during the trial, I didn't want to victimize her at all. That was just my attorney and his way of approaching the case. Your attorney is not your scapegoat. He represents you. Did your attorney say some incredulous, infuriating, degrading things? Absolutely. He said you had an erection because it was cold. You said you are in the process of establishing a program for high school and college students in which you see speak about your experience to speak out against the college campus drinking culture and the sexual promiscuity that goes along with that. Campus drinking culture, that is what we're speaking out against. You think that's what I've been what I've spent the past year fighting for? Not awareness about campus sexual assault or rape or learning to recognize consent? Campus drinking culture. Down with Jack Daniels. Down with Sky Vodka. If you want to talk to people about drinking, go to an AA meeting. You realize having a drinking problem is different than drinking and then forcefully trying to have sex with someone? Show men how to respect women, not how to drink less. Drinking culture and the sexual promiscuity that goes along with it goes along with that like a side effect, like fries on the side of your order. Where does promiscuity even come into play? I don't see headlines that read Brock Turner guilty of drinking too much and sexual and the sexual promiscuity that goes along with that. Campus sexual assault. That's your first PowerPoint slide. Rest assured, if you fail to fix the topic of your talk, I will follow you to every school you go to and give the, a follow-up presentation. Lastly, you said, I want to show people that one night of drinking can ruin a life. A life. One life. Yours. You forgot about mine. Let me rephrase this for you. I want to show people that one night of drinking can ruin two lives. You and me. You are the cause. I am the effect. You have dragged me through this hell with you, dipped me back into that night again and again. You've knocked down both our towers. I collapsed at the same time you did. If you think I was spared, came out unscathed, that today I ride off into the sunset while you suffer the greatest blow, you are mistaken. Nobody wins. We have all been devastated. We have all been trying to find some meaning in all of this suffering. Your damage was concrete, stripped of titles, degrees, enrollment. My damage was internal, unseen. I carry it with me. You took away my worth, my privacy, my energy, my time, my safety, my intimacy, my confidence, my own voice until today. See, one thing we have in common is that we were both unable to get up in the morning. I am no stranger to suffering. You made me a victim. In newspapers, my name was unconscious intoxicated woman. Ten syllables and nothing more than that. For a while, I believed that 
that that was all I was. I had to force myself to relearn my real name, my identity, to relearn that this is not all that I am, that I am not just a drunk victim at a frat party found behind a dumpster while you are the all-American swimmer at a top university, innocent until proven guilty, with so much at stake. I am a human being who has been irreversibly hurt. My life was put on hold for over a year, waiting to figure out if I was worth something. My independence, natural joy, gentleness, and steady lifestyle I had been enjoying had become distorted beyond recognition. I became closed off, angry, self-deprecating, tired, irritable, empty. The isolation at times was unbearable. You cannot give me back the life I had before that night either. While you worry about your shattered reputation, I refrigerated spoons every night so when I woke up and my eyes were puffy from crying, I would hold the spoons to my eyes, lessen the swelling so that I could see. I showed up an hour late to work every morning, excused myself to cry in the stairwells. I can tell you all the best places in that building to cry where no one can hear you. The pain became so bad that I had to explain the private details to my boss to let her know why I was leaving. I needed time because continuing day-to-day was not possible. I used my savings to go as far away as I possibly could be. I did not return to work for full-time as I knew I'd have to take weeks off in the future for the hearing and trial that were constantly being rescheduled. My life was put on hold for over a year. My structure had collapsed. I can't sleep alone at night without having a light on, like a five-year-old, because I have nightmares of being touched where I cannot wake up. I did this thing where I waited until the sun came up and I felt safe enough to sleep. For three months, I went to bed at six o'clock in the morning. I used to pride myself on my independence. Now I'm afraid to go on walks in the evening, to attend social events with drinking among friends where I should be comfortable being. I have become a little barnacle, always needing to be at someone's side, to have my boyfriend standing next to me, sleeping beside me, protecting me. It's embarrassing how feeble I feel, how timidly I move through life. Always guarded, ready to defend myself, ready to be angry. I have no idea how hard, you have no idea how hard I have worked to rebuild parts of me that are still weak. It took me eight months to even talk about what happened. I could no longer connect with friends, with everyone around me. I would scream at my boyfriend, my family, whenever they brought this up. You never let me forget what happened to me. At the end of the hearing, the trial, I was too tired to speak. I would leave drained, silent. I would go home and turn my phone off, and for days I would not speak. You bought me a ticket to a planet where I lived by myself. Every time a new article came out, I lived with the paranoia that my entire hometown would find out and know me as the girl who got assaulted. I didn't want anyone's pity, and I'm still learning to accept victim as part of my identity. You made my own hometown an uncomfortable place to be. You cannot give me back my sleepless nights, the way I have broken down sobbing uncontrollably if I'm watching a movie and a woman is harmed. To say it lightly, this experience has expanded expanded my empathy for other victims. I have lost weight from stress. When people would comment, I told them I've been running a lot lately. There are times I did not want to be touched. I have to relearn that I'm not fragile. I am capable. I am wholesome not just livid and weak. When I see my younger sister hurting, when she's unable to keep up in school, when she's deprived of joy, when she's not sleeping, when she's crying so hard on the phone she's barely breathing, telling me over and over again she's sorry for leaving me alone that night, sorry, sorry, sorry. When she feels more guilt than you, then I do not forgive you. That night I had called her to try and find her, but you found me first. Your attorney's closing statement began. Her sister said she was fine, and who knows better than her sister? You tried to use my own sister against me. Your points of attack were so weak, so low, it was almost embarrassing. You do not touch her.
You should have never done this to me. Secondly, you should have never made me fight so long to tell you. You should have never done this to me. But here we are. The damage is done. No one can undo it. And now we both have a choice. We can let this destroy us. I can remain angry and hurt. And you can be in denial. Or we can face it head on. I accept the pain. You accept the punishment. And we move on. Your life is not over. You have decades of years ahead to rewrite your story. The world is huge. It is so much bigger than Palo Alto and Stanford, and you will make a space for yourself in it where you can be useful and happy. But right now, you do not get to shrug your shoulders and be confused anymore. You do not get to pretend that there was no red flags. You have been convicted of violating me intentionally, forcibly, sexually, with malicious intent, and all you can admit to is consuming alcohol. Do not talk about the sad way your life was upturned because alcohol made you do bad things. Figure out how to take responsibility for your own conduct. Now to address the sentencing. When I read the probation officer's report, I was in disbelief, consumed by anger, which eventually quieted down to profound sadness. My statements have been slimmed down to distortion and taken out of context. I fought hard during this trial and will not have the outcome minimized by a probation officer who attempted to evaluate my current state and my wishes in a 15-minute conversation, the majority of which was spent answering questions I had about the legal system. The context is also important. Brock had yet to issue a statement, and I had not read his remarks. My life had been on hold for over a year, a year of anger, anguish, and uncertainty until a jury of my peers rendered a judgment that validated the, that validated the injustices I had endured. Had Brock admitted guilt and remorse and offered to settle early on, I would have considered a lighter sentence, respectful, respecting his honesty, grateful to be able to move our lives forward. Instead, he took the risk of going to trial, added insult to injury, and forced me to relive the hurt as details about my personal life and sexual assault were bu- brutally dissected before the public. He pushed me and my family through a year of inexplicable, unnecessary suffering and should face the consequences of challenging his crime, of putting my pain into question, of making us wait for so long for justice. I told the probation officer I do not want Brock to rot away in prison. I did not say he does not deserve to be behind bars. The probation officer's recommendation of a year or less in county jail is just a soft timeout, a mockery of the seriousness of his assault, an insult to me and all women. It gives the message that a stranger can be inside you without proper consent and he will receive less than what has been defined as the minimum sentence. Probation should be denied. I also told the probation officer that I truly wanted was for Brock to get it, to understand, and to admit to his wrongdoing. Unfortunately, after reading the defendant's report, I am severely disappointed and feel that he has failed to exhibit sincere remorse or responsibility for his conduct. I fully respected his right to a trial, but even after 12 jurors unanimously convicted him of guilty of all three felonies, all he has admitted to doing is ingesting alcohol. Someone who cannot take full accountability for his actions does not deserve a mitigating sentence. It is deeply offensive that he would try to dilute rape with a suggestion of promiscuity. By definition, rape is the absence of promiscuity. Rape is the absence of consent, and it perturbs me deeply that he can't even see that distinction. The probation officer factored in that the defendant was youthful and had no prior convictions. In my opinion, he is old enough to know what he did was wrong. When you are 18 in this country, you can go to war. When you are 19, you are old enough to pay the consequences for attempting to rape someone. He is young but he is old enough to know better. 
As this is a first offense, I can see where leniency would beckon. On the other hand, as a society, we cannot give everyone's first sexual assault or digital rape. It doesn't make sense. The seriousness of rape has to be communicated early. We should not create a culture that suggests we learn that rape is wrong through trial and error. The consequences of sexual assault needs to be severe enough that people feel enough fear to exercise good judgment, even if they are drunk, severe enough to be preventable. The probation officer weighed the fact that he has surrendered a hard-earned swimming scholarship. How fast Brock swims does not lessen the severity of what happened to me and should not lessen the severity of his punishment. If a first-time offender from an underprivileged background was accused of three felonies and displayed no accountability for his actions other than drinking, what would his sentence be? The fact that Brock was an athlete at a private university should not be seen as an entitlement to leniency, but as an opportunity to send a message that sexual assault is against the law regardless of social class. The probation officer has stated that this case, when compared to other crimes of similar nature, may be considered less serious due to the defendant's level of intoxication. It felt serious. That's all I'm going to say. What has he done to demonstrate that he deserves a break? He has only apologized for drinking and has yet to define what he did to me as sexual assault. He has re-victimized me continuously, relentlessly. He has been found guilty of three serious felonies and it is time for him to accept the consequences of his action. He will not be quietly excused. He is a lifetime sex registrant. That doesn't expire. Just like what he did to me doesn't expire. Doesn't just go away after a set number of years. It stays with me. It's part of my identity. It has forever changed the way I carry myself, the way I live the rest of my life. To conclude, I want to say thank you to everyone from the intern who made me oatmeal when I was woken up at the hospital that morning, to the deputy who waited beside me, to the nurses who called me, to the detective who listened to me and never judged me, to my advocates who stood unwavering by my side, to my therapist who taught me to find courage in the vulnerability, to my boss for being kind and understanding, to my incredible parents who teach me how to turn pain into strength, to my grandma who snuck chocolate into the courtroom throughout this to give to me, my friends who remind me how to be happy, to my boyfriend who is patient and loving, to my unconquerable sister who is the other half of my heart, to Alea, my idol, who fought tirelessly and never doubted me. Thank you everyone involved in the trial for their time and attention. Thank you to the girls across the nation that wrote cards to my DA to give to me. So many strangers who cared for me. Most importantly, thank you to the two men who saved me, who I have yet to meet. I sleep with two bicycles that I drew taped above my bed, reminding myself that there are heroes in the story, that we are looking out for one another. To have known all of these people, to have felt their protection and love, is something I will never forget. And finally, to girls everywhere, I am with you. On nights when you feel alone, I am with you. When people doubt or dismiss you, I am with you. I fought every day for you, so never stop fighting. I believe in you. As the author Anne Lamont once wrote, lighthouses don't go running all over an island looking for boats to save. They just stand there shining. Although I can't save every boat, I hope that by speaking today, you absorbed a small amount of light, a small knowing that you can't be silenced, a small satisfaction that justice was served, a small assurance that we are getting somewhere, and a big, big knowing that you are important. Unquestionably, you are untouchable. You are beautiful. You are to be valued, respected, undeniably, every minute of every day. You are powerful, and no one can take that away from you. To girls everywhere, I am with you. Thank you.
Okay, so thanks, Ashley, for um, it's gonna sound really bad, but I kind of I I know he was in the media a lot for what he did, but I didn't really follow the case a lot. Um, because I try and surround myself by positivity. <laughs> in that case was anything but. Exactly. So I didn't know much about it, so it was nice to like it wasn't nice, but like it was good to hear um what actually happened because I've always been curious. I just I, I surround myself by by really awful things in this podcast all the time. So <laughs> for sure. <laughs> so I like to stay away from it until I actually have to like dive into it. Speaking of awful things, what's your necrophilia? <laughs> um it's super short um i'm very curious to hear what this is yeah it's um it's really short um and i yeah it's it's interesting but (laughs) um so i used all that's interesting and um murderpedia i believe as my sources i know this is gonna sound weird but i love murderpedia (laughs) (laughs) i have a love-hate relationship with murderpedia i really like it because it's really good at placing everything in order however i hate it because it has 20 different articles of the same stuff just written by different sources and so it gives me a lot of anxiety because i go to the web page and i'm like holy hell that's like forever long <laughs> I gotcha. and then I try and do my notes and I get to the bottom of the first article and I'm like oh it's done <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah that makes sense yeah but anyways so this is the story of Earl Nelson so I'm going to begin just like I said at the beginning trigger warning to everybody it's not rainbows and sunshine so <laughs> Before Ted Bundy and the Zodiac Killer, there were plenty of serial killers roaming in the United States committing horrible acts of murder. Even though the term serial killer hadn't yet been coined and the public wasn't as captivated with these murders as it is now. And the man we're about to learn about today was one of America's most heinous and prolific murderers in the days before serial killers were commonplace on front pages and movie screens. Which is shocking because I don't think any of us have heard of him. No, yeah. (laughs) Earl Nelson's tragedy began only 15 months after his birth on May 12, 1897 in San Francisco. Give me one second. Oh, I was going to say, oh, he shares a birthday with my stepson, but my stepson's birthday is on the 13th, so we're okay. (laughs) Uh, His parents died of syphilis at the same time, which forced him to live with his maternal grandparents, Lars and Jenny Nelson. Hey, it's another Lars. There's a Lars in your story, Ashley, remember? The Swede? No, it was Peter and... Yeah, it was like Peter Lars or something like that. No, it wasn't Lars. You said Lars. No, it was yeah. Peter. Oh, you're right. It's ah. Peter Lars <laughs> Johnson. Yeah. Okay, my bad. My bad. 
Oh, I was gonna say that's like the most Swedish name ever. <laughs> it stuck with my brain. <laughs> Clearly, it did not stick with mine. <laughs> you had a lot of really awful stuff to go through. So I did. I forgive you. <laughs> the Nelsons were Puritans who tried to suppress their emotions, sentiments, and especially their sexual appetites. Which is always a recipe for good doings. Oh, yes. Um, I also read like this weird fact about um, Earl. Apparently, he used to like the only way he would eat stuff is if he like smothered it in oil and then he would like lick the plate off afterwards. And he ate like that till he was like a teenager. Ew. And he thought it was normal. It's not good to have that much oil. No. He, as we can imagine, was a very young troublemaker, and he faced exceptionally difficult circumstances. He was expelled from school when he was only seven years old for misbehaving. Holy crap. I know. They were strict in the 1800s. His teachers stated that he talked to invisible people and referenced Bible passages about a huge beast. Oh. In the meantime, he enjoyed watching his cousin Rachel undress. Gives me the heebie-jeebs. Yeah. Around the age of 10, Earl was out riding his bicycle when he was hit by a streetcar. This accident set the stage for the rest of his life. The accident was so bad, trigger warning, that he was bleeding from a hole in his head and he was in a coma for quite some time. Aww. Don't awe him. Well, I mean, awe that the poor kid got hit. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Surprisingly, against all odds, unfortunately, he woke up. <laughs> <laughs> but Sorry. Not like the kid, but you know, like knowing what he does. Yeah. yeah. I gotcha. I gotcha. <laughs> Did you guys watch Moon Knight? Yes, but I haven't seen the last one yet, so don't ruin it. No, I'm not gonna ruin it, but like, you know how um Amit like judges people mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. they do their bad things? Like it would have been nice if she came around for him. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so good it is really good oh i love oscar isaacs i do too (gasps) he's awesome (sighs) i feel like i feel like you're trying to change the subject so that you don't have to talk about the horrible things that are about to happen (laughs) maybe (laughs) maybe (laughs) but like honestly how amazing is he that he can go from being like this suave rogue and then like this really cute like shy little british man like it's yeah he did a really really good job oh god anyways sorry (laughs) (laughs) anyways uh he woke up sad Sad. um (laughs) but this accident caused him to have frequent headaches memory problems and of course unpredictable and dangerous behavior after behaving strangely and erratically during his brief tour in the United States Navy, he was sent to the Napa State Mental Hospital. He managed to get out of the hospital three times before the staff just gave up on looking for him. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> 
Earl Nelson's illegal habits became even more obvious around the age of 21 as he sought a method to escape his oppressive environment. This is where things get really bad. So, great. Buckle up. (laughs) He pretended to be a plumber on May 19th, 1921, in order to enter a San Francisco residence and molest a 12 year old girl. He escaped after she yelled, only to be identified and apprehended hours later. Authorities determined that he was dangerous and that he should be returned to Napa State Mental Hospital, where he had previously spent time owing to hallucinations and paranoid delusions. So basically, he heard voices and believed that people were constantly trying to poison him. He threatened to kill the medical staff at the hospital and physicians advised him to stay there indefinitely. Rather than languish in the hospital for the rest of his life, Nelson promptly escaped and thus began his most horrific crimes. After a fight, Ola McCoy, May Murray, and Lillian Weiner all died in their homes. After they died, each of the bodies were sexually assaulted. (gasps) A room for rent sign was posted in the window of each house. Like, not by the landlord. No, by the landlord. Oh. So, basically, he would search for houses that had a room for rent. He would go to said house being like, hey, I'd like to rent your room. And then he would kill and rape these women. Oh. Great. Yeah. Although some authorities may not formally link these victims to Earl Nelson, several of the crime's common components... Um, so the knots used to bind the victims, for example, mirrored those of his later crimes, and he matched the description given by a pawnbroker of the man who sold the victim's clothing. Mm. Nelson returned to San Francisco a few months later in February 1926 and began murdering additional unsuspecting women. From February to August, five more women died, all of whom followed the same basic pattern. Middle-aged women who put rooms up for rent were murdered and raped, and some of their belongings were later sold off, but the perpetrator was never located. Nelson would often study his battered Bible, hoping to put his victim at ease and catch him off guard. Mm. He would kill them almost always by strangling them, conduct necrophilia with their corpse once he had acquired their trust, and then leave. In San Francisco, some witnesses claimed to have seen a suspected offender. The assailant was described as a dark, stocky man with long arms and large hands by a few witnesses. Because this description resembled that of a gorilla, the serial killer was dubbed the Gorilla Man. Others dubbed him the Dark Strangler, not just because of his murderous ways, but also because no one could get a good look at him in the dark. Authorities began to notice additional strangulation and sexual assault instances in areas across the country, including Portland, Oregon, Council Bluffs, Iowa, Chicago, Kansas City, Missouri, Buffalo, New York, and Winnipeg, Canada, later in 1926 and into 1927. That's all over. I mean, that's spread out. Yeah. Like, how insane. He probably traveled by train or something. Yeah, like, must have. Hopping. 
Nelson murdered two people in Winnipeg. Lola Cowan, a 14-year-old girl, was one of them. Nelson murdered, sexually abused, and disfigured her on June 8th. And it's said that the mutilation was comparable to Jack the Rip- Jack the Ripper. Oh. And it gets even worse. Yay. After he did that to her, he then stuffed her body under the bed and slept the entire night in the same bed for three nights. Ugh. Yeah. Like, the smell. Yeah. Like, oh, sorry. <laughs> Told you it was a bad one. Emily Patterson was the other Canadian victim and she managed to remove tufts of Nelson's hair from his head before succumbing to strangulation on June 10th, 1927. Good for her. Yeah. Nelson opted to have a shave and a haircut the next day after pawning some of her and her husband's things that he had stolen from the scene. Police located the stolen items and with the help of the pawnbroker, retraced Nelson's actions from the pawn shop to the barbershop, where the proprietor described Nelson's appearance and said he had blood on his head from where Patterson had grabbed his hair. The authorities assumed they were hunting the gorilla man since this man's description and method of operation matched information they'd received from other police departments about him. They spread the word about his description and started out to find him. On the night of June 12th, 1927, the murderer rented a room from an unsuspecting woman. However, he noticed his description in the newspaper the next morning, so it was time to pack up the rest of his stolen belongings and leave town. The subsequent brief manhunt for Nelson is described in a variety of ways. But we do know that a civilian in Killarney, Manitoba, reported seeing him on June 16th and that police were able to apprehend him there. That night, though, he was able to pick the latch on his cell door and flee. (laughs) For someone that is constantly apprehended, he's pretty good at escaping. Yeah, for sure. And in all honesty, I'm always so impressed that they were able to like catch anybody back then with like the limited amount of resources and like yeah you know just crime scene stuff that we have now that they did not have back then oh i know like how crazy yeah however he was apprehended the next day oh good uh after his fingerprints and tooth marks wow jessica (laughs) After his fingerprints and teeth marks matched those recovered at some of the crime locations, Nelson was arrested and charged with murder. He allegedly killed at least 22 people in the United States and Canada over a 20-month period from the fall of 1925 to the summer of 1927. It's possible that the true number of victims is significantly higher. In terms of the quantity of victims, he was the most well-known serial murderer at the time. On November 1st, 1927, his trial began in courtroom number one of the Manitoba Law Courts building. The jury found Nelson guilty of the Winnipeg slaying of Emily Patterson, who was found strangled underneath her own bed by her husband, 
who had knelt by the bed to pray for her safe return after discovering her missing. Nelson's lawyers attempted to portray Nelson as mentally ill and thus not responsible for his crimes. But in just 10 days, Patterson was Nelson's fifth fifth victim. Oh, God. Yeah. Mm -hmm. On January 13th, 1928, Nelson was hanged at the Vaughn Street Jail in Winnipeg at 7.30 a.m. Doctors and law enforcement authorities at the time couldn't agree on a on a definite motive for why he killed all these people and even disputed on whether or not he was mad. Whatever his reasoning, Earl Nelson was America's most prolific murderer until the 1970s when the true age of the serial killer had begun, regardless of his motives or true number of victims. And I have a list of his victims. Of his known victims. Mm -hmm. So this is from 1926, February 1926 to June 1927. Clara Newman, Laura Beale, Lillian St. Mary, Anna Russell, Mary Nesbitt, Beatrice Withers, Virginia Grant, Mabel Fluke, Blanche Myers, Wilhelmina Edmonds, Florence Monks, Elizabeth Beard, Bonnie Pace, Germania Harpin, Mary McConnell, Jenny Randolph, Minnie May, Mrs. Antwerp, Mary Sitsema, Lola Cowan, Emily Patterson, and he also throttled Miss Harpin's eight-month-old baby. <gasps> oh. Oh. Or baby. Yeah, so that is my story on Earl Nelson. Thanks. It was awful. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> um, okay, I have a joke for you guys that I've been waiting all week for. That was a very <laughs> weird transition, but okay, go for it. <laughs> I'm, I'm very excited about it. Okay. What temperature does a cat like their meat? The perfect temperature. Oh, I like that, but no. <laughs> rare rare <laughs> I died laughing when I- I've been waiting all week for this <laughs> lovely <laughs> rare <laughs> Oh, does anybody have any jokes to top that one? Uh, <laughs> nope. Well, if you want more of us lovely ladies, you can find us at historiesandmysteries.ca. We are also on uh, Facebook and Instagram. And if you'd like to rate and review us, we would really love you. Um, and thank you to all of our new listeners and followers. Yay. We really appreciate all of you. Yeah. And we have a few stickers left. So if you would like a sticker, please email us or fill out the comment section on our website and we will get one sent out to you. Yeah. So we hope you have a great week. Yeah. We look forward to bringing you two new stories next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.